Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on today's programme on what is a warm spring morning here in the capital is Roger Philby. Um, Roger is the founder of the Chemistry Group, a London-based management consultancy. Uh, Roger, very warm welcome to yourself today and thanks ever so much for joining us on the show. Thank you, Scott. Good morning to you too, and uh, no problem at all. It's a Happy real pleasure. Real pleasure welcoming you with us. Um, and I think we should begin by addressing the elephant in the room here, and that's the fact that we're recording this in early June of 2021. So although we're starting to see some real green shoots moving forward and um, the end, hopefully, of COVID-19 social restrictions, we are still somewhat within the grip of the pandemic, and we have been for the best part of 14 months now. So reflecting on that last year or so by and large um to what extent has all of this affected you and your business would you say roger yeah i think it's been interesting the last 14 months have been interesting so the last six months i suppose of 2020 were really hard so we had managed to hold on to everyone really right until the last minute of uh, the year um when we did make some changes, which was really tough. Um, uh, so we made some changes at the back end of last year, structurally. Um, we were about, I don't know, 40 odd employees. We're currently at 38. So it wasn't major. And I'm pleased to say those people that um, did leave the organization, there are about half a dozen have gone on to find other things or do different things. So actually, you know, it turned out for them, um, okay um as far as the organization was concerned we came into the end of last year you know really quite tired um and looking for this year um to be very different um and it is i mean you know the good news and i hate to say good news because we are in the throes of the pandemic is that actually chemistry this year are having the most successful year of their uh, of our uh, of our time um, as a company. So we've seen a real turn of fortunes um, this year. It doesn't mean to say it's not difficult because it is, because everyone's distributed and working from home, but actually from a purely commercial perspective, actually we're finding it bouncing back um, very quickly. That's certainly really, really positive. And I suppose that coming out of the pandemic and you're sort of in that buoyant mood of bouncing back quickly and the, um, the recovery is looking quite good. Um, I imagine you've come out of this feeling sort of a lot stronger for that experience that you've had, even though it has been an immense challenge over the last 14 months. Yeah, I think that's fair to say, Scott. Look, we we took private equity money at the end of 2019. So from a cash perspective, we were okay, even though from a financial perspective into the year, obviously it wasn't the best of years from a pure P&L perspective. Um, so about June time um, last year when, you know, honestly, you know, clients quite understandably were more worried about themselves than who, what vendors, what they were using and what companies they were using to do what, we took a decision that we, you know, the metaphor I used was we're going to go into the gym. 
and use this time when we're not fully utilized, when we've got really smart people um, who aren't quite as utilized or as busy as they would normally be. And we'll turn that in on ourselves and, and get fighting fit. And, um, and so we really spent the last six months of last year actually focused on chemistry, learning as much as we could about what the pandemic had had raised in the business. So really, uh, interestingly, had raised some real weaknesses that we felt we could address. So we really spent the last, so, you know, the bounce back is partly market, but it's partly because we really, as I say, metaphor, we went to the gym and worked on ourselves and, uh, and, um, and spent six months really getting fighting fit while we were less busy than we normally would be. Um, we did see literally when the vaccinations were announced as working, I don't know, October time, and that's when things really started to shift and the external market started to pick up. But because of the work we've done on ourselves, we were in pretty good shape to start start looking at that. So, yeah, that's that's really how we use the time. That's really positive. And in terms of sort of your day-to-day operations, as it were, have you found yourselves having to move toward flexible working models over the last 14 months, um, like a lot of other businesses have? Yeah, we did. Fortunately, we were sort of native on two counts. Mm -hmm. We were native on using video conferencing. We work across 61 countries and we we have offices in London and New York. So we were used to um, video conferences. Actually, I was I said to uh, my CTO, we, we were sort of using Zoom before Zoom was famous. I didn't buy any shares, unfortunately, which would have been a good move. But um, uh, so we have these really quite fancy Zoom rooms in our offices. Um, ironically, now, of course, no one's using Zooms. Everyone's using Microsoft Teams. So uh, that feels like a false investment now. But so from a video conferencing, use of video conferencing perspective, we were native two, three years ago. Um and then from a home working perspective, whilst it's more accentuated now, we never kept office hours. So I always, um, having a family myself, um, I'd always, we'd always have a culture where as long as the work was done, we didn't really care where you were. Um, and so we were, we were sort of slightly ahead of the game on the home working by video and the flexibility. But it's fair to say it's now an extreme end. Um, but we will maintain the flexibility. We've been surveying our people for the last 18 months on what uh, what their work needs. It's not a return because they've always been working. Mm-hmm. It's more of what does what do we want the environment that we work in to look like. So we were quick to say, look, just expense any equipment you need at home. And we continue that policy. So anything anyone needs for home will expense to work from to make their work environment optimal. Um, so we see home working, but we will we will have offices. There's no doubt about that. Um, but two things uh, that have come through: one is it's sort of extreme collaboration you will need offices for, and extreme socialisation. So the other thing is the social aspect of the office um, is is clearly valuable, and therefore we will maintain an office presence for those things: extreme collaboration and extreme socialisation. I think there are some incredibly important points in there because um, the hybrid approach is going to be so, so important, as you rightfully say, because as much as we talk about working from home and flexible working models, having that work-life balance benefit, it isn't a one-size-fits-all approach. And there are still huge, huge benefits from that 
ability to work together in person, that social aspect of being in an office amongst colleagues. So that is going to be hugely important. And that's also going to have those sort of mental health and well-being benefits as well. And this is an issue that has also been greatly amplified by the pandemic, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. And um, I, I, I'm constantly worried about that. Um, not not so much for, for me, for example, because I'm sort of old now. So I have a, you know, really nice house and I have a room where I work in and I can walk out and I'm no longer working. But for, for people who are on their career journey, um, you know, we had we had folks who were holed up in their London homes, flat shares with friends who had been doing Zoom calls from their beds for you know, 12 months. Can you imagine um, not seeing their mm-hmm. friends, um, only connecting with their colleagues via video and um, and, tr- and providing support to those people and the mental health challenges, I think just in general. Um, but obviously the thing I'm most concerned about is our employees and how we support them through that. Um, but, I, you know, again, the, the slight sort of upside is I think these issues were probably always there. They've been accentuated by um, the sort of working from home or taking a work into your home um, that everyone's been forced to do. So on the upside, I think it's brought attention to organisations. You know, chemistry's chemistry's, um, view is that organisations are just the sum of its talent. Mm. Um, And and I think most companies intellectually get that, but not a lot of companies pre-pandemic were actually walking that talk I, I think now it's undeniable that organizations who invest in their people whether it be their mental health whether it be um, reaching out and and uh, getting the hybrid working working are going to be more commercially successful than those that don't embrace that um, and therefore we've got this huge at last this huge imperative um, that is causing organizations to really walk the talk, um, which I think can only be a positive thing in the long term, even though obviously in the short term it's been super painful. I think that's very right. And just um, a different sort of question now, because I understand mm-hmm. that you were ahead of the curve with the remote working side of things and you were used to connecting with colleagues uh, from around the world virtually. Do you find that you sort of have to adapt your sort of leadership style in any way when working with one set of people perhaps in person in an office and then another set of people who are deployed remotely around the world do you find there's a big difference there at all yeah i think i've done a number of things differently so you know i'm i'm very uh active in the office i.e i don't sit at a desk i tend to move around anyway and, and i was seeing our u.s colleagues every six weeks without fail i was flying um now I I have virtual coffees um, all the time, so I basically rotate through the whole company, um, where I am personally meeting and chatting to every single employee. Because I, I I typically would do that in the office, um, and I would time it so I could do it in the office. I can't do that right now, um, so I, I literally have virtual coffees every quarter with everyone. Um, you know, whether they like it or not. And just to touch in and and touch base, I found myself um, jumping in in meetings, not jumping in with my voice, but being in meetings and being far more visible um, or or being purposefully more visible to the organization 
because I don't have that luxury of being able to walk around an office and sit on people's desks or take them for a coffee or take them for lunch or whatever that may be. So I've had to really think about how can I create intimacy um, and communicate how we're doing, what we're doing. So you, you'll see that I think our the rate of communication from the leadership team on all of our channels of communication has gone up, you know, exponentially. Um, and actually, again, you know, I'm a, as you picked up, I'm a forever optimist. So again, I'm like, do you know what? Even if we did go back to the old way of working, which we never will, there are a bunch of things like that, far more transparent, far more frequent communications, coffees, with, which I would, I would just keep. Um, because the upside has been just fantastic and the feedback from the team has been fantastic. So we would just keep those things. I think it's so right what you say there that communication is so key and I think being able to convey and communicate that sort of energy and enthusiasm throughout a crisis as well as a CEO, director or business leader I think that's incredibly infectious isn't it because when you're seeing a business leader sort of looking energised looking well looking after their well-being enthusiastic for the future about what's at hand that does have an impact on those around them doesn't it and it encourages others to sort of be enthusiastic be energetic themselves and look after themselves in the same way regardless of their circumstances yeah definitely definitely you know the the risk to the business right now is not market-based because we're seeing huge market bounce back um the risk to the business is morale and 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 general people's you know quite rightly people's exhaustion um that's really the risk um and every company's facing that right so um Um, we're not unique but as a leader I literally wrote this to the leadership team in a note yesterday or the day before which was look you know the market's booming for us we've got more work at the moment um, than we've had before Um, so you know in in normal times this would be incredible Um, the difference this time is two years of a totally different environment and people are tired and exhausted, not because they're not enjoying their work, but because of the context they've been living in. Mm -hmm. And therefore that is a material risk that us as leaders uh, are duty bound to manage. Um, And so, um, you know, I think encouraging people to be kinder to each other, encouraging and thinking about how we can engage people or not, if they don't want to be engaged, (laughs) but how, how we can, um, keep morale high um, make sure people are looking after themselves make sure we're managing the workflow if not the work I think is critically important and I think for everybody tuning into this that provides some real food for thought doesn't it um, and I would like to talk about sort of the future in just a little bit more detail as well, Roger, just before mm-hmm. we do wrap things up on the uh, the show this morning. Um, the chemistry group has, of course, emerged from this pandemic thus far very, very well, as we've mentioned. Um, but over the course yeah. of the next 12 months, as we hopefully leave the pandemic behind and move into that post-COVID world uh, for certain, um, where is it that you'd really like the business to be heading? And indeed, where do you see yourselves this time in a year? Yeah, it's a great question. So in that sort of gym metaphor I used earlier, we created a three-year strategy um, for the business coming out of the pandemic, which is obviously year one. Um, So in a year's time, um, 
I think we're I'm I, I think we're really clear where we want to be. We have a number of product um, studies that we're doing at the moment. So I think we would have launched one or two new products into the marketplace that are about our future growth. We would have developed our technology um, to a different level. We're investing significant amounts of money each year in our technology. So if I look at our three strategic objectives, which are win and grow A clients, um, talent density and full potential product, I just want to have made progress on all of those. Um, the single biggest thing that, uh, and I alluded to it earlier, there's the, the two things that are going to be the limitations to chemistry's growth because there's nothing in our product that would limit our growth. There's nothing in the market opportunity or our clients that would limit growth. There's two things that are going to limit growth. One is how we treat and the environment we create for our people to be successful. That's always been true, but the pandemic has created a new set of context and dimensions to that, which means as leaders, we have to try harder. And then the second thing is, and I don't know if your other businesses are seeing this, is the recruitment market right now is crazy. I have, I don't know, I need to hire 15 people, 10 to 15 people. Um, and um, the the marketplace for talent full stop, but in consulting, which is where we exist in technology, is um, is, is kind of crazy. Um, and so access to talent and how we take care of our own talent are the two biggest things that I really want to look back in a year's time and go, you know, we scored ideally 10 out of 10, but eight to 10 out of 10 would be fantastic on those two bits. Um, Certainly sounds like exciting times and for those young, talented individuals that may well be tuning into this and looking for opportunities in consulting. Now you know exactly where to be looking. Yeah, <laughs> you're not wrong. <laughs> Please. Absolutely, Roger. And thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the show today. It's been a real eye opener and a real pleasure welcoming you onto the programme. And um, just because thank we're not you. quite out of the woods yet with the COVID situation, do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on but better times certainly are coming it seems thank you scott it was a pleasure talking with you thanks for the opportunity it was fantastic to welcome roger philby from the chemistry group onto today's program and uh, coming up next on the show today um, we'll be keeping it very much educational by joining lord david blunkett our incumbent chairman and of course former education and secretary under tony blair's labor government he'll be coming onto the program to share his take on the um, happenings of the last 14 months and talk about what hopefully will be coming on the horizon as well um, that will be coming up on the program next lord blunkett welcome thank you very much it's very good to be with you um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises can't benefit from the business rate waiver. 
uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. and. In that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is as far as humanly possible is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cyber security side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up.
and they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's a, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear right. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been... Uh, 
a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm-hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? 
But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that. But it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Uh, shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future 
in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019, I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why 
the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. 
we want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one key, uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority, in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank you for coming on the the program. It's been an absolute pleasure and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye.
Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.